So Genesis chapter 4, Am I my brother's keeper? Somewhat of a familiar story that many of us know, may have learned in Sunday school over the years. And we'll look at verses 1 through 9 as we continue in this great book, which I really believe is unlocking the Bible for us. It helps us to see the foundation, the beginnings of many things that occur throughout the Bible as you continue on. It's kind of like going to the, the boundary waters, the beginnings of the Mississippi River. You see this little trickle, and then all of a sudden this big thing. And as we go through the Bible, you begin to see how these foundational things were placed in there, and then God brought it to pass. Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So a story of two boys throughout in the midst of a finish of a snowstorm and it's probably up to their knees and they're having a good time playing outside and one boy turns to the other and says let's see who can make the straightest path and so he begins and he just fixes his eyes on a tree and he begins to walk straight and keeping his path straight by keeping his eyes on the tree but the other boy began looking at the tree as well and he began to walk but every once in a while he would stop and he would turn around and uh, looked back, and then he would continue on. And as they finally got to the tree, they both looked back, and the boy that continued to look back and then look forward had a zigzag, of course, getting to the tree. And the difference, the little boy says, how come mine's a zigzag and yours is straight? And it says, because I kept my eye fixed on the tree. And that's what Abel did, and that's what we need to do. We're talking about the story of two people and the choices that they made in their lives. And that we have to keep our eye fixed on the author and the finisher, finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about, the story of these two men today and uh, the difference in their lives and how we have two choices of a path to go on and which one will we choose. We have all of life to look at that. Well, Abel was a man of faith who brought the first sacrifice accepted by God. And I've agonized over this passage of scripture because as I've looked at many commentators in scripture, some would say that Cain was not a believer, but most commentators say he was a believer by the way God treated him by grace after uh, his brother Abel was killed. So we're going to fall on that side today and believe that he was a believer. But it reminds me of the choice that we all have to make according to Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy 
that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so we have to choose the road that's less traveled, that many people will not follow when we follow Jesus Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, Cain's sin led to the multiplication of sin as the population of men and women grew quickly on the face of the earth. So let's look at the contrast of these two lives. And first of all, we begin with the fact that God is the creator of life. God is the creator of life. Look at verses one and two again. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. God is the author, the creator, the giver of physical life, of physical life. He's the one who started the process of conception in a mother's womb. He's the one who determines when life will come to an end. We see politicians, we see doctors talking about late-term abortion, even infanticide. We see the laws that are passed in numerous states about assisted suicide and people choosing when they want to bring their life to an end. We could go on and on about the ways man is trying to become the creator of life, but only God is the one who is the author and finisher of everyone who is ever born on this earth. God provided the means for the world to be populated through a man and a woman through the joy of sexual intimacy. And it's interesting that despite sin and depravity coming into the world and growing, God still keeps his promises to this hour found in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's the author of physical life, but he's also the author of spiritual life. Spiritual life. Notice Eve's proclamation. It seems to reflect back to Genesis 3.15, where God promised the Messiah who would crush Satan's head. She said there, I have acquired a male from the Lord, the God-man. She may have thought that Cain was the promised seed, the Messiah. She may have thought that he was coming back to return them to pre-sin days and take them back to what would be like the Garden of Eden. She would be sadly mistaken. So the application under this first point is it's up to God alone to allow life to begin and determine when it ends. And we need to stand up for that. We need to speak to that in our culture. Uh, that's, a, that's a growing tension all the time between those who, as we said, want late-term abortion and euthanasia and assisted suicide and infanticide. It's going to be up to us as believers to stand in the gap for those innocent lives that need to be redeemed, that God created. Well, second of all, God calls for obedience in worshiping him. And remember, these sacrifices were really acts of obedience. In verse 3, it says in Genesis 4, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain... And his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We need to always remember that God's love language is obedience. Obedience. 
Many of you have read the book by Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages, or may, you may have heard the principles of it. But you read throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, God's love language is obedience by the believer. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. Well, there must have been some previous instruction from the Lord to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and their brothers and sisters as to what kind of sacrifice to bring as an offering. That's the only way these two would have known to bring an offering. Notice the two brothers. Some think that they may have been twins, but there's no way of knowing whether that's true or not. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer or a tiller of the land. God asked them for an offering as a fruit from the fruit of their labor. I find it interesting that most scholars do not believe that the reason God did not accept Cain's offering it wasn't because it wasn't an animal or blood sacrifice. It was because his heart was not in the right place. He was just doing his duty. He was checking off his responsibility. His heart was not in the worship. The reader will see here the beginning of the spiritual conflict that's about to occur. Notice that Abel's offering is described as the firstborn, the fat portion, meaning it was the best. But that term is left out from Cain's the description of Cain's offering. It not necessarily wasn't the best of his crops. This is a precursor for us to understand what God wants as we worship. 1 John 3.12 says this, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. God wants us to come with hearts prepared and open and clean when we gather together in worship. God desires worship from the heart. Not just a duty, not just something that we do on Sunday and we go along our merry way the rest of the week. We should worship throughout the week. We worship at our jobs, we worship when we connect with other people in volunteer situations, or whatever it may be. Out for a walk in nature, we worship God throughout the week. And so we see in verse 6 of chapter 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God's saying, hey, let's get things straightened out and you will be just like Cain. Your sacrifices will be accepted. And he goes on to say in verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We see Cain is angry, he's sulking, he's hurt. He's envious of the fact that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and his wasn't. And so his countenance is looking down, he's disgusted. Notice how God comes to Cain just like he did with Adam and Eve. God asks him a question so he can evaluate and assess his heart. God's grace, he said, is available if you're willing to choose it. But if you choose to let sin come in, it, it will be like a wild beast. That's the word picture here he's using in the Hebrew. A wild beast will come in if you open the door and take you over and devour you. And notice they're accepted in that verse, in verse seven, to be accepted means his face will be lifted back up. He can look God eye to eye without guilt forgiven of his sin. God says that Cain must rule over his sin. In other words, bring it completely under control. And in that moment, Cain had a choice to make. 
And that word there is similar to the one that God talked about with Eve when the consequences of sin, that she would have this desire to uh, 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 go against her husband's authority and spiritual leadership, but she would have to bring it under control. It was the same idea. God was very gracious and gentle with Cain. As many commentators believe, Cain was a believer, and he was tempted with his anger to sin, and he would be punished for it, yet through it all, God showed grace and mercy to him. Notice that Eve was talked into her sin, but Cain was trying to be talked out of his sin, and he wouldn't be talked out of it. This reminds me of that old hymn of the faith, Trust and Obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, to take God at his word, to live it out in our life, even if it defies common sense, even if it goes against what the strain of the culture, the stream of the culture is leading you to. The only way the application here is to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey. And so Cain was at that crossroads. You know, it's interesting as we think about trusting and being happy in Jesus and obeying, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But then when the temptation comes or when the opportunity comes to trust and obey God and it's not convenient, it's, it's not popular, what do we do? It's easy to give in and not trust and obey. Well, we see also that God condemns the taking of a life. God condemns the taking of a life. We see the first murder in the Bible here. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. We see Cain's inner hatred leads to a verbal dispute with Abel. And this is where it gets tricky because in the English language and your text, you can't see the Hebrew idioms here, but we'll point those out. You see, he's envious of Abel doing the right thing and his offering being accepted by God, and his was not. Notice that word where he says in verse 8, God, Cain spoke. Spoke is one of those idioms. It means more than talk. It means he talked, he told, and to use an English idiom, he had words with Abel. It was a dispute. It wasn't a quiet conversation. They were angrily arguing with one another. Conflict is a common theme to the book of Genesis. Think about it. Noah and his sons. You think about Abraham having Ishmael, and so Sarah and Hagar having issues. We think of Abraham and Lot having to separate because the herdsmen were arguing about the land. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Laban, and then Joseph and his brothers. So we see the foundation of conflicts and how things are dealt with in the right way and a wrong way in the book of Genesis. Notice in verse 9, though, here in chapter 4, how God views Cain as a believer in need of correction because God wanted the best for Cain, ultimately. Once again, like Adam and Eve, God asked Cain a very convicting question. Where is Abel, your brother? 
It was designed for him to confess, to admit that what he had done was wrong, that he had murdered his brother. And while Adam and Eve confessed in an imperfect way, Cain did not. Yet God, in his rich mercy, did not pronounce the severest of judgments on Cain, which he deserved. He deserved the death penalty. But according to today's standards, when Cain killed his brother, he would have been charged with murder one. But instead, God didn't take his life like it's laid out in the Mosaic law. And then a few chapters later, chapter 9, verse 6, where it talks about someone who sheds blood, his life will be required. God showed grace and mercy toward him. And because of that, Cain's pride broke in verse 13. And on the surface, you read this verse and you can't see that this is a verse talking about confession. It almost sounds like he's, he's telling God, the punishment's unjust. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Because God showed mercy on Cain, Cain comes to the end of himself here in verse 13. That word punishment in the Hebrew means iniquity, my iniquity, my sin, my evil. The word bearing means to bear away or forgive of sin. So to understand it, the Hebrew idiom is saying, my sin is too great to be forgiven. He said, I know what I've done is wrong, but because I murdered, that's beyond the grace and the mercy of God. But isn't it great as we read through the Bible, God's mercy and grace is always, always, always greater than our sin. Does anybody know what mercy means? Who knows what mercy is? Mercy, what's the word mean? It's the kindness we don't deserve. Okay, it's not getting what we deserve, right? It's a kindness. Does anybody know what grace means? Grace. Getting what you don't deserve. And so you see both of these in action here. Mercy, not getting what he deserved, and grace, getting something he didn't deserve. And if we come just as we are with a broken and contrite hearts, God will always, always meet us where we are and forgive us if we will confess our sins. I think of David. You know, he lusted after Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He made sure that the husband was killed to hide the sin. And in Psalm 51, after Nathan the prophet pointed out his sin, David said this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And that's so important. God will never despise someone who genuinely confesses of their sin and wants to repent and turn away from it. There's no sin beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. And Cain's story is a reminder to us to examine and evaluate our hearts and our actions to see if we've sinned. Sins of omission, things that we know we should have done but we don't. And sins of commission, things that we willfully do that we know we should not. We need to remind ourselves as we think about this concept of am I, am I my brother's keeper, we don't live for ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that we don't live for ourselves. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 14. He says, for none of us who are believers lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
When you signed on to become a Christian, you immediately became accountable to other believers for how you live your life. Too many times I see across our culture, Christians not caring what other people think or not realizing the power of their testimony by living out in concern for what the weaker brother may think. They're living their lives the way they want to, using their liberties no matter what and how it affects other people. We have to battle against being self-centered Christians. We are joined together in the body and we need to do what's best for all, especially for an unbelieving world that's watching us and looking for unity and love among believers. We have to remember the teachings over and over again of Paul and the issues of the weaker brothers in Romans 14 and 15 and other places in his writings. We're to live as open books before our fellow man. And yes, you and I, we are our brother's keeper. Look at Galatians 6, where we have to bear the burden of others and other places in scripture. We are our brother's keepers. We are responsible to one another. Not that we're perfect, but that we need to be blameless, doing our best to imitate what God has established and set out in his word. So we don't live for ourselves, but we face consequences for our actions. We need to continually be reminded in the back of our mind that if we sin, we're going to pay a price. There might be fun in the short term, but down the road, it's going to be a price that you're going to pay. The Fram oil filter commercial you know, it talks about whether, you know, pay for it now or pay for it later. If you don't put the oil filter in and change your oil, guess what? Down the road, you're going to pay the ultimate price. We face consequences for our actions. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God graciously gives Cain some hope by placing a sign on him of divine protection. Many have thought this was a negative mark, as I've heard preachers say, but the commentators think this is a supernatural mark of some kind, indicating God's grace and God's parental care for Cain. The word sign, as it's talked about here, was used in Genesis 1.14 in the fourth day of creation. It means God's active involvement in human history, always with the purpose of redeeming mankind. He puts a sign on him. And if you and I are honest, we live in the land of mercy and grace each and every day, just like Cain did, visibly, for people to see. But the challenge is we don't want to become complacent in your sin because God's patience with his grace and mercy has a limit. Many people in our society mock and they say, well, look, I'm getting away with this and where is God and all these things. But trust me, if there's gonna be a point in day if you read Revelation and Daniel and Joel that the mighty wrath of God will be poured out. So don't become complacent in God's grace and mercy. So be reminded be reminded here that the price for sin is too expensive to play with. The price for sin is too expensive to play with. It says in Hebrews 11 that Moses traded the pleasures of sin because he knew they would only last for a short season and then there would be a payday. Well, Cain goes on and lives his life and develops a community while 
sinful depravity among men continues to grow. God creates civilization on the earth he created. And just as the sinful nature was in every person, so sin began to abound. And we see in Genesis 4, verses 17 through 22, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the, other of, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah, who bore Tubal Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The, city of, the sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. So we see the fulfillment of God's mercy and grace toward Cain as he was married, as he had children, as he had grandchildren and established communities. And it's true that Cain married his sister. That always comes up when you look at this passage of scripture. And God allowed that for a period of time. That was how the world had to be populated. But then when you get over to when he laid out the Mosaic law, he explained where the limits and the boundaries were of who you should marry and who you should not marry. Cain and the subsequent family members that were born saw their guilt over sin. And so what did they do? Instead of many of them turning to God, they turned to accomplishments. They built buildings. They tilled the ground. They got involved with the things of the world around them. They focused at the needs of hand, not necessarily dealing with the sin and the guilt that they faced. Notice a few of these people. Jabal, the father of tents and livestock. He was like Abel. He ruled over the animals. And remember the promise that man would have dominion over the animals and he would have livestock. He would also allow other people to uh, till the land. They made the bronze instruments and iron and other things to till the land to get the resources out to benefit mankind. Jubal was Jabel's brother. He made instruments. The lyre or the harp, it was like a sounding board with strings stretched across it or an organ better known as a flute, an instrument that's still used today by shepherds and leaders of worship in the Near East. Tubal Cain, as we said, made implements or tools for the ground. So what do you see here? You see a civilization being formed. You see farming. You see fine arts. You see technology. You see cities being established by the descendants of Cain. And then in verses 23 and 24, we learn more about Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech's the first person recorded in scripture to have two wives. And of course, that violates what Genesis 2.24 is all about that a man should be married to one woman for one lifetime and not two or multiple wives. Lamech was bragging about being injured by a young man and killing him. He felt that if Cain got off with mercy from God, then he should have even more mercy because this person supposedly just hit him for no reason and yet he killed him. 
There's grace that God gives to men and to his children. But there's this large outpouring of grace that we know as common grace. Common grace is given to all men, whether they're believers or not. And then we have the special grace that's poured out upon us as believers. Well, the mercy and grace God delved out to Cain and those who continue to sin is called that. This is the grace given to all. And this is a precursor of the Mosaic law, the lex talonis, the eye for an eye. And I thought it was interesting this week as I studied, I never really thought of this. But when God gave the Mosaic law, he was saying, this is the full extent of the penalty that needs to be done. But you were not obligated to give that full penalty. You could actually show mercy and grace. An example of that, as I thought about it, was Jesus and the woman that was caught in adultery. He had every right to allow her to be executed, to be stoned to death, because that was the law. But he didn't do it. He showed mercy and grace instead. And so here again, God shows his mercy and grace where Lamech takes a life and he spares Lamech's life. We're obligated to understand and intimidate, I'm sorry, we're obligated to to imitate God in the way that he shows grace and mercy to other people. In Matthew 5:48, we often read this verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, thinking of the fact that we can't measure up to the law and that the law brings us to Christ. But it also says there that we are to imitate God because he is perfect. And we are to seek to show grace and mercy in the perfect ways, just like the father. Well, it's key to note here that despite man's depravity, God still honors his promise for husbands and wives to be fruitful and multiply. And I think it's interesting that God, through the common grace, allows many of his promises to come true despite the sinfulness of man. God's promises are irrevocable according to Romans 11.29. He's speaking there about his promises of Israel being a remnant. And despite the fact that they got into idol worship and despite the fact they had two captivities and despite the fact that many of them have turned away even to this hour God says you will have a land and in the tribulation time many will come to faith in Christ we know at least 144,000 and beyond that God is faithful to keep his promises well look at second and first Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 Paul says the same thing The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But listen to verse 13. If we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thank God he's the ultimate promise keeper. He's immutable. He doesn't change. And when he says this is a promise, it will come to pass. These are the promises from God, not the conditional ones, but the ones that he makes in his word. Seth replaced, it's interesting as we think about that, that Seth replaced Abel. Look at verse 25 of Genesis 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And we'll read more about him and his genealogy in chapter 5. But Seth replaced Abel. Seth's name meant appointed one, or compensation, or substitute. 
So the application here is the community we live in is a divine part of God's plan. Fine arts, technology, civilization, all these things, farming, agriculture, all these things God established very quickly on the earth despite the depravity of man. Well, the mention of Seth here having a son named Enosh will be a segue into chapter 5. And we'll talk about that next week. But God is called upon for mercy and grace in dealing with sin. We see at the very end of this chapter, the last phrase in verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word called there literally means to proclaim. People were seeking aid and deliverance from physical death and distress. We see this act of worship move now from individual people where it says people, a corporate worship, was beginning. Worship was a response to when God delivered them and revealed himself to them in the affairs of everyday life. But Abel was a righteous man while Cain, though a believer, allowed sin to affect him and his descendants. These two men lived in the same home with the same parents, may have even had conversations together with God or at least heard about God through the parents, and yet they chose two different ways of life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Isn't that interesting? How people confronted with the same information, the same opportunities, choose different things. And so it brings us to these points. For some people, depravity drives them to repentance and God. For some people, depravity drives them to repentance and God. But for others, it drives them away from God to indulge in their passions and desires within the world system. You and I were called to come and worship God with a right heart attitude, giving praise and adoration to him who pours out his mercy and grace upon us on a daily basis. May we be reminded of that. May we not be complacent with our sin and God's grace and mercy. May we seek holiness in our lives and pursue that because of all the blessings that he's poured upon us, because of the love that he's shed abroad in our hearts. The application here is, are you sensing God's call to worship and obedience in your life? Worship and obedience. That's the path Abel took. The key thought here for us is, where will you find your source of life? Cain decided to do what he wanted to do. Abel the short life he had, he sought after pleasing God and honoring him. The choice is ours. So here's some questions to ponder this week as we close. On what do you depend for your source to give you the wisdom and values for your life? Yes, we get into God's word and all these things, but do we also listen to what the world has to say? And we try to mix it all together. Or is this the final authority in our lives? Second of all, you're living for yourself as a Christ follower for the building up of others and the glorification of God. Are we our brother's keeper? Are we here to benefit others, to serve others, to love others? And for what are you calling on the Lord about currently in your life? What are you calling out to him to do in your heart and life? Let's bow for prayer as we think and ponder those things. Maybe you're here today and maybe you say, you know, there's some area of complacency in my life 
I've allowed some little sins, little foxes to kind of creep into my life. And because God hasn't brought the judgment on me or punishment, you know, I'm okay with it. That's presuming upon God's grace and mercy. And that's sin. And we need to be willing to turn away from doing those little things that we know are not pleasing to him. So I ask you, look in your heart of hearts. And as we continue to worship and music in a moment, is everything right between you and the Lord? Is your worship and your adoration and your calling out to the Lord all that it should be? Fathers, we take a moment to do business with you. Lord, I pray that you'll work in each and every one of our hearts. Help us as we receive this word to be challenged, to look and examine our lives as God asked Cain to examine his. Lord, I'm just so grateful that you're the God who is there with open arms to receive us. That there's no sin that's greater than your grace and your mercy. There isn't anything that you won't forgive if we're willing to come with a contrite heart, a broken heart over our sin, to confess it and to be willing to repent. We thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to be careful about presuming upon your grace and your mercy. Instead, we should rejoice. We should seek holiness. We should seek to love you in obedience to you because you've given us that grace and mercy. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.